Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Let us realize that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Dr. King once said that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Once again, America's bent the arc of the moral universe more toward justice. The image has become part of American scripture. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. So said Martin Luther King in his final Sunday sermon at Washington National Cathedral in 1968. President Obama had the quotation woven into the rug of the Oval Office during his presidency. The original words are drawn from Theodore Parker, a mid-19th century Boston minister and abolitionist, and they have come to suggest that the pursuit of justice is difficult but essential, and that to live in hope is not irrational. But it's worth recovering Parker's original words, which are illuminating in ways not quite captured by King's characteristically brilliant paraphrasing. Here is what Parker said. Look at the facts of the world. You see a continual and progressive triumph of the right. I do not pretend to understand the moral universe. The arc is a long one, and my eye reaches but little ways. I cannot calculate the curve and complete the figure by the experience of sight. I can divine it by conscience. And from what I see, it bends toward justice. Things refuse to be mismanaged long. Jefferson trembled when he thought of slavery and remembered that God is just. Ere long, all America will tremble. Note how Parker began the passage. Look, he told us, at the facts of the world. And what did he mean by facts? Well, he told us. Here is Parker again. There are some things which are true, independent of all human opinion. Such things we call facts. Thus it is true that one and one are equal to two, that the earth moves around the sun, that all men have certain natural, unalienable rights. No man made these things true. No man can make them false. A great definition. Fact is something that is true, independent of all human opinion. Independent of all human opinion. Mathematics, the weather, and, I'd submit, the results of free and fair elections. And fact is under existential assault in the America in which you and I are living.
If you are going to be a Republican or you are going to be a conservative, you must subscribe to these big and little lies. And I strongly believe that a democracy can't function in that fashion. There's never been a time like this where such a thing happened, where they could take it away from all of us, from me, from you, from our country. This was a fraudulent election. The choice has to be made. Where do you stand on this side of democracy or on that side? You see the way others are treated that are so bad and so evil. I know how you feel, but go home and go home in peace. If you've been kind enough to listen to the installments leading up to this one, you know the basic argument, that the right wing of American politics has chosen to live by a lie, that President Biden stole the 2020 election, that Donald Trump is the true president, and that those in the Republican ranks who fail to salute and fall in line with this pernicious fiction must be purged from the party. Just ask Liz Cheney. Can you take me inside those moments for you when you lost your leadership position. You know, I was very honest and I told them I have a real affection and admiration for most of them. And I, you know, I love this institution. And we all have been put here in this moment by history and history is gonna judge us. For reasons that I don't understand, leaders in my party have decided to embrace the former president who launched that attack. And I think you've watched over the course of the last several months the former president get more aggressive, more vocal, pushing the lie. And I, I think that's a really important thing for people to understand. This isn't about looking backwards. This is about the real-time, current potential damage that he continues to do. This didn't start in 2015. I've argued that the lie has roots in the experience of conservatives stretching back to Yalta through desegregation and the failure of Republican presidents to deliver on promises, among other things, to amend the Constitution to limit abortion rights and to protect sectarian prayer in schools. What is of more recent vintage is the absolutism with which Republicans abjectly follow Donald Trump, come what may. Listen to Lindsey Graham on Fox News. Can we move forward without President Trump? The answer is no. I've always liked Liz Cheney, but she's made a determination that the Republican Party can't grow with President Trump. I've determined we can't grow without him. And so the question now is what can be done? It's not a matter of negotiating with Republicans, for many Republicans are not currently rational actors within the constitutional framework. I have a lot of conservative friends. I live in Tennessee, so that's inevitable. And many of them say something like this. Yeah, we know Trump is terrible, but Biden's all about big government. To which I say, if Trump had his way, there might not be a government at all. Only a vehicle for autocracy, power, and personal glory. This isn't hyperbolic. Just listen to him. And to use a favorite term that all of you people really came up with, we will stop the steal. That election, our election, was over at 10 o'clock in the evening. And then late in the evening or early in the morning, boom, these explosions of bullshit. Because if Mike Pence does the right thing, we win the election. 
We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved. And we're going to the Capitol, and we're going to try and give. The Democrats are hopeless. They're never voting for anything, not even one vote. But we're going to try and give our Republicans, the weak ones, because the strong ones don't need any of our help, we're going to try and give them the kind of pride and boldness that they need to take back our country. I know your pain. I know you're hurt. We had an election that was stolen from us. It was a landslide election, and everyone knows it, especially the other side. But you have to go home now. We have to have peace. We have to have law and order. We have to respect our great people in law and order. We don't want anybody hurt. It's a very tough period of time. There's never been a time like this where such a thing happened, where they could take it away from all of us, from me, from you, from our country. This was a fraudulent election. But we can't play into the hands of these people. We have to have peace. So go home. We love you. You're very special. You've seen what happens. You see the way others are treated that are so bad and so evil. I know how you feel. But go home and go home in peace. And what happened on the day he said we'd remember forever? Insurrectionists threatened the lives of the duly elected representatives of the people, including the Speaker of the House and the Vice President of the United States. And I hear folks say, well, lies and conspiracy theories aren't new. The JFK assassination, Vietnam, Watergate. To which I reply, of course conspiracy theories aren't new. But just because something happened before doesn't mean it's not happening now. And examples of duplicity within our democracy that predate the Trump coup d'etat were called out and now stand as just that. Examples of duplicity that must never be forgotten. Yet the Trump lie endures. Polls suggest that as many as 60% of Republicans in America believe the 2020 election was stolen. A majority, and a big majority of House Republicans voted against certifying the results of elections that had, by the way, elected them to office. So what to do? Predictably, perhaps, I believe in the efficacy of history to illuminate a path forward. And American history in all its complexity suggests that reason must have a role to play in the life of the republic. The 20th century historian Sir Michael Howard once wrote that reason is not a thing or a person, much less a god. It is an activity and a highly individual one. It is people thinking and judging. More, it is individual persons thinking and judging. A knowledge of the past is essential in making political or moral judgments, but history as such does not judge. This is done by people, and best done by people free to think, read, inform themselves, and debate before they decide, and having decided, be free to change their minds. Sir Michael Howard's is a pretty good standard, and one we must struggle with all our might to meet. To the American right, I'd say, 
Embrace the lessons of our past. Don't cancel reality. They said it couldn't be done. They say it bordered on impossible. When someone says I can't do something, I usually agree with them. <laughs> and now, against all odds, this completely mediocre comedy podcast has done the unthinkable. They got listeners. We got listeners. No way. Amazing. Now available on the Odyssey app or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm so happy we're at Odyssey now. Oh my God, they're amazing. The Commercial Break Podcast. You heard it here last. Many Americans early in our history saw the cause for self-government as one allied with the forces of enlightenment. That revolutionary victories were triumphs of right reason against discredited notions of the hereditary authority of princes and prelates and popes. A commonly excited example of the Enlightenment-era nature of the American experience comes from Thomas Jefferson, who said, All eyes are opened or opening to the rights of man. The general spread of the light of science has already laid open to every view the palpable truth that the mass of mankind has not been born with saddles on their backs, nor a favored few booted and spurred, ready to ride them legitimately by the grace of God. America, for all of its failings, was seen as an embodiment of Enlightenment ideals. The scholar Robert A. Ferguson once observed, Education, exploration, and invention should unite in the general advance of humanity. But that possibility depends upon prompt action in the more immediate and unpredictable realm of politics. Progress, in other words, is not a predetermined evolution through fixed stages of history. The moment can yield permanent darkness just as easily as additional light. The stakes are permanently high. And so they are. Democracy depends on daily habits of heart and of mind, daily struggles to curb selfishness and appetite and ambition. For democracy is founded on our seeing one another not as adversaries, but as neighbors, and to be forever open to the possibility of lending a hand. Not because lending a hand is the right thing to do, though it is, but because democracy thrives when we live in a sense of covenant. We help each other because if circumstances were reversed, and it's in the nature of circumstances that they are one day reversed, we're going to need help ourselves at some other hour. Understand, democracy does not require uniformity. Our founders argued, they quarreled, Eventually, they compromised. They expected us to do the same. But they knew that democracy does require a basic sense of solidarity. The idea that for all our outward differences, we're all in this together, that we rise or fall as one. Look, this isn't a homily. It's just what I think of as a fair-minded, historically-based reading of history and of reality. Here's what Harry Truman thought about the tricky nature of democracy. 
Yes, Truman said, much of the nation's fate lies in the hands of the president, but the voters have the ultimate authority, the ultimate responsibility. In his long post-presidency in Independence, Missouri, Truman observed, The country has to awaken every now and then to the fact that the people are responsible for the government they get. And when they elect a man to the presidency who doesn't take care of the job, they've got nobody to blame but themselves. Engagement, especially at a time of heightened conflict, has its perils. Those motivated by what they see as extremism on the other side are likely to see politics not as a mediation of difference, but as warfare where no quarter can be given. But the country works best when we resist such impulses. The reformer Jane Addams wrote, We know instinctively that if we grow contemptuous of our fellows and consciously limit our intercourse to certain kinds of people whom we have previously decided to respect, we not only tremendously circumscribe our range of life, but limit the scope of our ethics. Ever practical, Eleanor Roosevelt echoed the point and offered a prescription to guard against self-certitude. She once wrote, It is not only important but mentally invigorating to discuss political matters with people whose opinions differ radically from one's own. For the same reason, I believe it's a sound idea to attend not only the meetings of one's own party, but of the opposition. Find out what the people are saying, what they are thinking, what they believe. This is an invaluable check on one's own ideas. If we are to cope intelligently with the changing world, Mrs. Roosevelt said, we must be flexible and willing to relinquish opinions that no longer have any bearing on existing conditions. If Mrs. Roosevelt were writing today, she might put it this way. Don't let any single cable network or Twitter feed tell you what to think. What happened was that when conservative media started, the premise was that they were going to be a correction to what they perceived as liberal bias in the media, that they saw too much opinion in factual reporting, that they perceived that the New York Times in particular, but really the Washington Post and most, quote, mainstream journals were sort of slipping in the liberal agenda. This is Jennifer Rubin, columnist for The Washington Post. So they were going to be different. They were going to be more objective. They would offer conservative commentary, but they were going to take it like it is. That didn't last very long. And pretty soon, I think we saw what has happened is that an entire parallel reality, an Earth 2, has been created by conservative media, which is now inhabited to a large degree by the political class. They are no longer using, for example, Fox News as their messenger. They are deriving their narratives. They are defining their worldview by what they see and what they hear within this bubble. And that's why when you see, for example, Donald Trump or other conservatives start talking about things that seem very strange we're all lost because they are talking within a narrative that doesn't exist outside of conservative media. And so they have, I think, adopted as an article of faith that their reality is the reality, that if they say that left-wing rioters impersonating MAGA people charge the Capitol, well, that's the reality that they're going to adhere to. It is a remarkable example of 
sort of the big lie writ large. There's the big lie that the election was stolen, and there are lots of little lies. And if you are going to be a Republican or you are going to be a conservative, you must subscribe to these big and little lies. I strongly believe that a democracy can't function in that fashion. You need to have a shared reality. Wisdom generally comes from a free exchange of ideas. And there can be no free exchange of ideas if everyone on your side already agrees with each other. Harry Truman said, I have been fiercely partisan in politics and always militantly liberal. I will be that way as long as I live. Yet I think we would lose something important to our political life if the conservatives were all in one party and the liberals all in another. This would make us a nation divided either into two opposing and irreconcilable camps or into even smaller and more contentious groups. There is such a thing as discernible reality. Here's Truman again. The dictators of the world say that if you tell a lie often enough, why people will believe it. Well, if you tell the truth often enough, they'll believe it and go along with you. Whether President Truman was right is what we are testing now. To reflexively resist one side or the other without weighing the merits of a given issue is all too common and all too regrettable. By closing our minds to the even remote possibility that a political leader with whom we nearly always disagree might have a point about something is to preemptively surrender the capacity of reason to guide us. Of course, it may be that you believe, after consideration, that the other side is always wrong. But at least take a minute to make sure. And I would argue that a grasp of the past can be orienting. Daniel Webster once said, when the mariner has been tossed for many days in thick weather and on an unknown sea, he naturally avails himself of the first pause in the storm, the earliest glance of the sun, to take his latitude and ascertain how far the elements have driven him from his true course. Let us imitate this prudence and before we float farther on the waves of this debate, refer to the point from which we departed, that we may at least be able to conjecture where we now are. The past and the present also tell us that demagogues only thrive when a substantial portion of the demos, the people, want him to. Lord Bryce, the Englishman, warned of the dangers of a renegade president. His view, however, was not that the individual himself from the White House could overthrow the Constitution. Disaster would come, Bryce believed, at the hands of a demagogue president with an enthusiastic public base. Bryce wrote in a book called The American Commonwealth, a bold president who knew himself to be supported by a majority in the country might be tempted to override the law and deprive the minority of the protection which the law affords it. He might be a tyrant, not against the masses, but with the masses. The good news is that hope is not lost. As Harry Truman said, the people have often made mistakes, but given time and the facts, they will make the corrections. There is a sense in which our political response, our policy response to the current crisis the polity faces has to be at scale. This is the historian, author, and professor of African-American studies at Princeton University, 
Eddie Gloud. We have to be bold and visionary, not in the sense of trying to duplicate what FDR did with the New Deal or even what Johnson was trying to do with the Great Society, but for our moment, our time, we need to respond at scale, a kind of new moral and social contract which announces our obligations to each other that states clearly what American democracy means in the lives of those who claim this place as home. And I think that has to be said in such a way or offered in such a way that doesn't necessarily build consensus, but builds or makes possible a different conception of mutuality than the ones we've had in the past. And we have to create the kinds of what William James would describe as those, those momentous choice, that moment in which the choice has to be made. Where do you stand? On this side of democracy or on that side? Given time and the facts. We may fail. Democracies do. That's the experience of history. But if we are to survive, our path to a durable future one of liberty and justice and opportunity, will begin when enough of us follow the example of Theodore Parker and look out on the world clearly, honestly, and forthrightly. We cannot bend the arc of a moral universe when we don't even agree on the nature of that universe. We've believed in different realities before. Many Americans have accepted lies as truth, And thankfully, just enough of the rest of the country has said no. Lies are lies. Truth is truth. And when that's happened, the arc has been bent in the right direction. Make no mistake, progress isn't inevitable. Justice is forever elusive. Liberty is always fragile. And the arc of the moral universe can snap back. Let this affirmation be our ringing cry. It will give us the courage to face the uncertainties of the future. It will give our tired feet new strength as we continue our forward stride toward the city of freedom. When our days become dreary with low hovering clouds of despair, when our nights become darker than a thousand midnights, let us remember There is a creative force in this universe working to pull down the gigantic mountains of evil, a power that is able to make a way out of no way and transform dark yesterdays into bright tomorrows. Let us realize that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. It may yet. The duty of our time is clear. Look at the facts. Interpret them by conscience. And perhaps, just perhaps, we can save our country. Thank you for listening to Fate of Fact, a presentation of Shining City Audio, a John Meacham and C-13 original studio, created and executive produced by me, John Meacham, and Chris Corcoran. Fate of Fact was written and narrated by me, John Meacham. Directed by Lloyd Lockridge. Edited, engineered, and mastered by Chris Basil. Additional production, engineering, and research support 
by Paige Heimson, Bill Schultz, Sean Cherry, and Ian Mont. Our theme song is Remember Me as a Time of Day by Explosions in the Sky. Artwork by Kurt Courtney. Marketing and PR support by Brian Swarth, Josephina Francis, and Hilary Schuff. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. I mean, it was everything. It was the center of the cultural universe. It really was, and I am not overstating that. MTV started as an all-music video cable TV channel, and it became something much bigger. It was the global youth culture brand for decades. At the beginning, it was like a cultural rocket ship. Now, things are a little different. My name's Dave Holmes, and because I used to work there, pretty often people ask me, what happened? And what I learned isn't just the story of the greatest TV channel of all time. It's the story of pop culture before it got atomized by algorithm-driven entertainment. Join me and a whole bunch of fascinating people whose lives intersected with MTV as we try to answer the question, if video killed the radio star, who killed the video star? Follow and listen to Who Killed the Video Star? The Story of MTV, an Odyssey original. Available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts.